Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to our newest season of Humane Podcast in 2021. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and this is Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to our show. Listeners, welcome back to the Humane Podcast. As we're diving deeper into 2021, there's one thing that's been on everyone's mind, and it's not the pandemic. It's the rise of AI. It's the great divide that we've been seeing in the last decade, the splintering of the internet, the splintering of AI and research and science and whether technology is being used for the greater good or for alternative purposes. And today's guest on our show is Stephen Umbrello, who is a managing director for the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies in the European Union. Stephen's work focuses on ethics and design thinking around building AI systems and how policy can shape the future of these autonomous systems that many of us think about every day. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. No problem. Happy to be here. I'm really pleased to have this conversation because I've had many conversations with colleagues out east. And by east, I mean Singapore, Taiwan, China, Korea, and other countries and island nations. And also with colleagues out west in the United States, in Canada, in the European Union. And there seems to be a diverging thought on where we're going to be going with these systems Let's just start with some background from you about what type of work do you do with autonomous systems and AI systems, and where are we at today with the work that you're doing? Yeah, so uh, I guess you could say some, my work is could be described as being somewhat eclectic. However, it's all within the more umbrella domain of engineering ethics. So I'm trying to provide tools, clarification of what would be normally abstract philosophical concepts like human values to engineers in a way that they can implement those more abstract values or translate those more abstract values into design requirements. And I guess more specifically, my work has focused on 
regardless of which technology I was looking at, whether it be advanced nanotechnology, like atomically precise manufacturing, industry 4.0, or artificial intelligence, has been on a particular approach, which has garnered a lot more interest in the last two decades, which is value-sensitive design, which is simply a uh, principled design approach for how we can incorporate human values, which are often abstract, into uh, technological design. Human values. I mean, so, you know, I'm someone who has certain values and you, Stephen, you have certain values. And are our values all rule-based engines? Are they these decision trees? Or, you know, do you think we can quantify that? Quantify? Probably not. So this is actually one of the, the basic precepts of value-sensitive design is that it doesn't really affirm a root-based or a universalist conception or an absolutist understanding of human values. And in many ways, it's culturally or social-culturally sensitive. It's fundamentally predicated on the fact that technology design has to be situated in the context of design, use, and deployment. So part of value-sensitive design, particularly in one of the initial phases, which is understood as conceptual investigations, because value-sensitive design is fundamentally broken up into three parts, and it's often described as being a tripartite methodology for that reason, is the fact that we can begin with some perhaps a priori values, designers that can look at the philosophical literature on specific technology if it exists and look at some of the values that have been implicated, maybe come up with some definitions, some working definitions of those values. And the definitions of values remain working throughout the design phase of any given technology. And it's informed, it's reflexive, and it's iterative in the sense that once we begin empirical investigations, whether that's bringing in the stakeholders, and of course, stakeholders are different depending on the social cultural context in which those investigations are being carried out, then we can start to revise those working definitions of those values. And therefore, how can we translate those values into design requirements using these social cultural norms? of the place that we're doing those design programs. Difficulty with AI and with many technologies today in a globalized world is that the, the difficulty would be we can develop a technology here in X, but unfortunately that technology has cross-cultural, cross-domain, cross-border impacts. So it's trying to incorporate different understandings of values from across the globe into a single technology. So these are some of the difficulties that designers are, are facing right now. That's right. And as startups go global, there's been many stories over the years of startups that uh, have a logo and the logo could mean delicious in the United States and it can mean something explicit in Japan and it gets lost in translation uh, over the cross-border, the cross-language and the cross-culture. So there's definitely value-sensitive design and I think the startups today that have been very successful overall with software scaling across borders have hired local, right? They've taken humans that have these values and these cultural norms who can understand the local dependencies of a geography and then implement the same technology across those borders. And that's led to this new uh, Internet of Things or Industry 4.0 where startups are global, where we're in a distributed world, where your team can be follow the sun model, somewhat the United States, the European Union, and Asia, always working and never sleeping. But there's always humans involved. It's not completely automated, at least yet. So that's actually a pretty good example of within the value-sensitive design paradigm, within this philosophy, this approach of engaging or enrolling stakeholders. And in that case would be direct stakeholders because we're drawing on a community, a population that would be directly working on the design of any given technology that are fundamentally situated in a cultural or social context to bring some of those values or value understandings directly into the design. And it's fascinating because when I talk with a lot of startups, everyone thinks they're inventing something incredibly new, but in general, it's the same software with a new programming language, a new technology, with a unique business model and a unique culture. 
And today it's still very human focused, but we're very rapidly seeing that everything's being automated or augmented in a certain capacity. And most of it's been with software and the rise of multi-cloud, but today it's also including the rise of physical devices, of hardware. And these can be small things that developers we know as our Raspberry Pis and uh, little computers that were trying to run machine learning and control the humidifiers in our apartments or lower lofts in some good use cases. But then we see even bigger use cases that are arising. Uh, the classic story is this company called Boston Dynamics that many of us have heard about in the last few years. It seems as if only yesterday their spot was barely able to get up on its four legs. And then it, there started being eight of them moving a giant 10-wheeler truck. And then the newer version looks like a human in a space suit that can actually catch boxes and parkour as if it's doing CrossFit only in the last couple of years. Better than I can. Better than you can. Better than I can. I mean, I love CrossFit. But I get tired. I don't have that much juice. <laughs> and, and it's gone even further. You know, at the start of 2021 and in the end of 2020, Boston Dynamics revealed another new video of the dancing robot. And this dancing robot, I mean, it can dance. I mean, as in, I think the next season of Dancing with the Stars should have the dancing robot on it. I had to look at it a few times to determine if I was watching a CGI video rather than an actual robot doing it because the movement seems so natural, so fluid. I literally thought that too. I mean, I am a terrible dancer overall. I mean, I took some classes in salsa, merengue, and bachata back in, in college and, and some things in New York, but I just cannot do the moves. And But I mean, of course, I think everything's practice, right? As human, it's if I continue to commit to it and practice, I would become more proficient and better at the moves. I was so surprised that here in, in 2021 that the dancing was so, I wouldn't say flawless, but it was fantastic. It looked like CGI. Definitely. No, well, you brought up a, a pretty good point, and I think it, it merits hitting on it. You were talking about these technologies that or startups seem to market at least or maybe even believe that what they're offering or what they're developing seemingly is revolutionary or something entirely new. But your point is prescient in the sense that you essentially reiterated a fundamental precept of philosophy of technology, particularly the most recent turn, which is the design turn in the philosophy of technology or in engineering ethics, whatever you want to call it. And that's that technologies don't come from nothing. They're all built on these design histories of previous technologies. And that's because society and technology co-construct one another in many ways. Technology is not purely deterministic, nor is society purely constructive, and nor is technology purely instrumental, like it's just a neutral tool. It doesn't embody any type of values whatsoever. And that was really illustrated really nicely by Langdon Winner in 1980 in his famous essay, Do Artifacts, Artifacts at Politics, where he showed how the New York bridges were designed purposefully too low to not allow buses from low-income neighborhoods to pass through them to get to the Long Island beaches that he really, really liked. And that was an example of racist design. So really those bridges, which is a relatively simple technology, embodied such a strong social value there, right, that he held. But that has changed over time. And we see how values change over time and how those bridges now, you know, Vehicles have become more widely accessible and uh, even to low-income neighborhoods that can now pass underneath those bridges, right? So we can see how technologies that embody certain values, those values also change over time. So you brought up that really good example. Yeah, whether it's the, the, a new type of programming language, you know, we're still working within similar bounds and on these design histories that kind of, in a way, softly determine what comes after it. And that really is important because that means the decisions that we make today as engineers, as designers, and philosophers do have a real substantive impact into the future. So the fundamental precept then of philosophy or ethics of engineering is that engineers have to take responsibility for the responsibility of others. That means into the future, multi-generational design. 
This multi-generational design is at the heart of, I think, everyone's mind in the United States this year. We had a historic moment at the beginning of 2021 that hadn't happened since supposedly the War of 1812, which yeah, was great. the Capitol Hill was broken into and stormed by supporters of, of then-President Donald J. Trump. And what was so interesting about this is that, you know, technology enabled this opportunity of humans with their values to come together and make a decision and make a choice based on human interaction using platforms like Facebook and Google and Twitter and, and a lot of these social networks that at the time claimed that they are pro free speech and pro democracy and pro communication. And uh, I, I think 2021 is going to be a lot of unfolding of where is that line drawn and where do the rights and policies get held? Are they with each individual human? Are they with the government? Are they with the private entities? There's so much to unpack there, which has triggered an additional, I think, splintering of technology. Definitely. I, I We have to try to avoid uh, the dichotomy of black and white, good and evil when it comes to this, because there's too many issues at play. There's too many agents at play. We have the dirtying of too many hands when we're talking about responsibility. I'm not sure if we should get too much onto the topic of the Twitter ban and what Facebook, Google, and actually so many other platforms have somewhat followed suit. I think the underlying motive in many of these cases is protecting their bottom line in a fear of some sort of social pushback in the event that they don't follow suit with some of their larger competitors or similar type of social networks. But I think what it does show is where power lies right now and how these companies are able, regardless of what you think about what uh, the ex-president has done to deserve or not deserve being banned and what social media has, like, for example, Twitter, their rationale for doing so. Regardless of that, it shows how much power these companies have over social discourse. They've shown the exact thing, as you mentioned, the ability for these people to come together in a, because of a common set of values and then take action in the real world. They realize that the, there is that power that people have on their platforms, but they also have the power to also determine what those values are and, what, and the people who hold them coming together. They can easily remove that. And I think if we don't want to get too off topic, my, I guess, view is that they can't have the cake and eat it too, in the sense that they can't say that they're not publishers, but then act as censors like a publisher would because a publisher is legally liable for the things that they publish. They are not. I believe in the United States, there was a debate over, I don't want to get too beyond my, my specialty. I believe it was section 230. But I do think that they can't have the ability to not be regulated, but also act as censures in that way. So I don't, I think, in principle, have a problem with them banning or uh, enforcing their own policy for who can and who cannot speak on their networks, despite the distribution of their network and the power that it has. But it also has to come with regulations. They can't, they can't have it both ways. I think this is so timely and relevant, though, because having a ban is similar to the embargoes, the embargoes on trade that we've seen against China and Tehran and North Korea and other countries. And bans are embargoes. And whether they're physical goods or technology, it creates the space for other conversations to start happening and other um, dichotomies in directions the history will take that may have not taken previously. And so I find that really interesting because of your work with ethics and design and thinking about, you know, what is the future of technology around these physical hardware, like these Boston dynamic robots? You know, I love these robots. I, I'm actually the biggest proponent of them. Like I, I keep telling my dad, I can't wait for the day where I can buy him a fully functioning robot that can assist him and cook and move and, and do all these great things. But then there seems to be conversations that, that you and I have spoken about offline about bans around a lot of these robotic devices. And I wonder, you know, what are people thinking about them? And are they thinking the right about 
how we ban, what we ban, and, and are people having these deep conversations? Well, I think some of the issue with even prohibiting or banning is, or where the, the conflict lies, there's a lack of nuance. I think often when a ban is brought up, it's a reaction to usually what is marginal, so the extremes of any certain technology. So we uh, kind of, it's a knee-jerk reaction to this uh, reductio ad absurdum, so moving all the way to the extreme. So what's the danger of AI is we like to think of the Terminator, right? We like to think of the killer robot, which I do agree in a certain sense, maybe a ban on certain kinds of autonomous weapon systems, killer robots, whatever you want to call them, makes sense. But we have to be very careful about which kinds because broad brushing too often may actually have the opposite effect, particularly when we want to have international multilateral coordination and treaties that we want, the, especially the, the superpowers, we want the nation states that are actually developing these technologies to sign on to. But if it's too broad brush, if it's too restrictive, if it's not nuanced enough, then they may not sign on to it at all. And then it will have the opposite effect. This episode of Humane is brought to you by the Art of Manliness podcast. If you're sick of having to wade through two hours of fluff in order to get a few good takeaways, tune in to the Art of Manliness podcast. The Art of Manliness podcast gleans and distills the very best insights from the world's experts in self-improvement, philosophy, practical skills, history, and more, and does so in under an hour without all the eye-roll-inducing filler. You'll walk away from every episode of the Art of Manliness podcast with actionable insights you can start implementing today to improve your life. Check out the AOM podcast with over 100 million listens available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast players. So like everything, like the the discourse with the social media companies and these online platforms is we have to be able to walk the middle path in the gray. And that's difficult because you're going to get tension on all sides but I think that it, it's really the only way forward because there really is no black and white that, that we can easily choose from. And that'll do more harm than good in the end. Yeah. And, and I think as a result of what 2020 was, where there's been so much disruption to supply chains and social networks and human interaction, we've heard about different countries, even in Africa, who have shut down social media prior to elections to prevent uprisings. I think all of this human tension does get triggered or channeled into other modes. And, you know, very fortunate about the scenario in the United States of the Capitol that, um, you know, yes, there were tragically um, several lives were lost, but it could have been so much worse. And this begs the question, um, having seen riots and protests in Hong Kong, having seen riots and protests now in New York City from the Black Lives Matter movement over the killing of George Floyd, and now with the conversations around what the history and, and the future of presidency holds, like with the 25th Amendment in the United States and impeachment, it begs the question, if we had other modalities of enabling citizens or enabling governments or enabling organizations, who would that be serving? And to what extent would that be beneficial? And that namely would be these autonomous weapons. So can you dive a little bit more philosophically into this, Stephen, and tell us also about like, what are autonomous weapons? Because I'm not sure if everyone knows what those are. Yeah. So I think that that's the question we have to actually start. It's like, what are these weapons? And is it really an R in the sense that is there one kind? So I think that that's where we can begin to really break down the debate on it, whether we should ban, not ban, ban what kind. So I think when most people hear killer robots, autonomous weapon systems, they think Terminator, right? And to maybe an extent, that's true, okay? But that also highlights this point of nuance of type rather than token. So technological innovations have always played a key role in military operations. And autonomous weapon systems, at least within the last few years, last decade definitely, are receiving asymmetric attention both in public and as well 
academic discussions, and it's for good reasons. These systems are designed to carry out more and more tasks that were once in the domain of human operators, and questions regarding their autonomy, potential recalcitrance have sparked discussions that have highlighted a potential accountability gap between their use and who, if anyone, is to be held accountable if something goes wrong. And at the international level, discussions regarding how to exercise control over the development and deployment of these autonomous military systems has been undergoing for this decade with very little consensus. And even up until this year where they had another um, the Convention on Conventional Weapons to determine about prohibition and regulation, there's very little consensus as to what constitutes a sufficient level of control. My research essentially has been to discuss what does it mean to have control over these systems. I kind of shift away from the concept that you can attribute any type of accountability to the system themselves, but there's always going to be a human or a group of humans in which responsibility and accountability lies. And that goes back to our earlier point. That's because these things don't develop ex nihilo from nothing. There's a design history, design decisions that have been made that have allowed a system to get to a certain point. Now, I think that when you say autonomous weapon system, killer robot, terminator, you have a specific image that comes into your mind. That's like a ground-based system. Maybe it's anthropomorphic. Maybe it's something around like treads on tracks, right? Something like the Boston Dynamics robot maybe holding an assault rifle. And I think to an extent, there's a difficulty in having meaningful human control over those kinds of systems. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And I think that that's actually a good point because I argue that Maybe meaningful human control is possible over certain kinds of systems, in particular aerial assault systems, because that's not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of an autonomous weapon system. However, most of warfare right now has been shifting towards, and it has over the last hundred years, particularly since the Second World War, towards aerial warfare. And that's because aerial warfare is a force multiplier, right? It provides its fundamentally asymmetric in the um, capacity it offers military operations when assaulting ground forces. And we've seen the shift and the increase in the use of drone warfare, particularly by the United States, since the Obama administration, particularly the gap, the gap between the Bush administration to the Obama administration, like it's been like an exponential increase in, in the use. And it makes sense why. Right? There's a host of factors why cost rather than putting troops on the ground, whatever it may be. So those type of systems feasibly could be and probably will be the first type of fully autonomous weapon system. What do we mean by that? There's different levels of autonomy, right? So when we say fully autonomous, the operative word is autonomous and it's fully. So that means there's different kinds. There's different levels of autonomy. And actually Noel Sharkey, who's been a big voice, particularly pushing for 
a band has distinguished between five levels of autonomy. So, you know, the, the basic first level, lowest level of autonomy would be a human engages with and selects a target and then initiates an attack. So that's like our common notion. That's our autonomy in a way. Whereas the highest level, level five autonomy, is where a program, regardless of its embodiment, we could say a ground type of vehicle, ground type of robotic, or an aerial robotic or a naval robotic, the program selects the target, initiates an attack without human involvement. So that would be the highest level five. Then you have the three levels in between, right? So you have think like level three would be a program selects a target and then a human must approve before an attack mm. or maybe a higher level, the program selects a target and a human has a restricted time to veto it. Without the veto, the attack will be carried out. Those are not more attractive options for militaries because of the lag between what can happen. And it doesn't really provide that much of an advantage for the military to have a human directly in the loop like this or on the loop. So there's this incentive towards full autonomy, right? But there's also the fear of recalcitrance. It's if something goes wrong, who's going to be held accountable for this? Whether it's a war crime, whether it's lack of proportionality in a strike. And I think that there's this intuitive desire for that level five autonomy. No, we can't have this because there's definitely going to be an accountability gap here where the program selects a target and initiates an attack without human involvement. And I think that that intuitive desire to ban that type of system makes sense. But I think that what it lacks is a full understanding of the context in which these types of systems are being used. At a pragmatic scale, these type of autonomous weapon systems are not autonomous, really, even at level five. And that's because as uh, in a United States document, the United States Air Force, I believe, said there's no such thing as a fully autonomous weapon system, just like there's no such thing as a fully autonomous soldier, Marine, airman, because there's a structure, an institutional structure that constrains full autonomy in a certain sense. And that's Echolhoff, for example, in 2019, wrote a paper on operational control. And that's be, the military-industrial complex, to a certain degree, constrains this type of autonomy. So this level five autonomy really is not problematic for aerial autonomous weapon systems. And that's because the military, for example, you know, conventional air operations, which frame human involvement as a dynamic targeting process. And by framing the role of human agent decision-making within a distributed system outlines ways that policymakers and theorists can use to determine how military planning and operations actually function and thus frame the use of autonomous weapon systems within those practices. And in characterizing the human role in military decision-making, you can outline at least a six-part pre-operation landscape for mission execution. So there's like a pre-mission briefing, right, that goes on. So before a mission actually is undertaken, the air component is briefed with the information on mission execution, which often can be highly detailed to include information like target location, times, what types of munition, while also less detailed when we consider like dynamic in situ targeting. And that information is distributed to various domains of operation, to specialists who then vet and use it for more detailed planning. The executioners of that mission, uh, in the case of like, for example, traditional airstrikes would be a fighter pilot. A fighter pilot would be in the cockpit of the plane. And we think that they have a lot of control over this, uh, but they're brought in, they're briefed on the mission details. They take the time to study the information provided while also making sure of any last minute preparations for execution. And in this even in this pre-briefing package, there's a lot of components there, right? We, we're talking about the description of the target. Is it like a military compound consisting of all the available knowledge, like the target's coordinates? What are the collateral damage estimations to provide the operator with an estimation? Not a certainty. It's never a certainty of the expected collateral damage. 
right? A recommendation of the quantity, type, and mix of lethal and non-lethal weapons needed to achieve a desired effect. The joint desired impact used as a standard to identify aim points. And then there's things like the weather forecast, right? So you can imagine like uh, sometimes strikes take place at night. It could also be overcast, stormy, heavy rainfall. These things limit, uh, you could say, standard visuals, right? And the ability to confirm a target in the more intuitive sense. And then that goes directly into the in-situ operations, the actual operations and deployment on the ground. So, you know, like intelligence and data is required in order to sufficiently find the target for the operation. In, for example, case use, uh, a target would be pre-programmed into the fighter jet's navigation, as well as in the payload's navigational system. Whereas a dynamic target would require data collection. Here, the target involves arriving at a pre-programmed weapons envelope, the area in which the weapon is capable of effectively reaching the target. And this program is often, the entire process, often displayed on the operations heads-up display of the pilot. Then they fix the target, you know, at this stage, once the operator has arrived in this weapons envelope, that the onboard systems aim to positively identify the target that was confirmed previously during the operational planning to ensure that the payload delivery is compliant with the relative relevant military and legal norms, right? Given that, in this case, the targets were pre-planned and confirmed, the operator usually doesn't even engage in visual confirmation for positive target identification. Instead, they rely on the onboard system for validation that took place during the operational planning to ensure that the identified target is lawfully engaged. Therefore, even in like a fixed case like this, a pre-programming, the human pilot doesn't even require attending to anything else during the phase other than simply arriving within this weapons envelope. So we can already start to see how an autonomous weapons, like the, the role of the pilot can be easily substituted for a, a fully autonomous weapon system in the sense that level five autonomy without really changing the relevant philosophical nuance here. So we can already start to not apologize for, but show the nuance in debate that level five autonomy in and of itself is not the problematic point of interest, but rather what type of system has this level five autonomy. We can already start to see some of the issues of on the ground like the classic Terminator type that has that level five autonomy, because on the ground, a lot of the relevant factors change. A lot of that is highly dynamic. So it's really what is the context of use and what type of systems embody this level five autonomy that therefore become philosophically problematic. And maybe in that case, maybe we could even find ways in which those are not either problematic either certain situations in which they are simply not even permitted to engage with a target without the relevant information. But there's a lot of that epistemic barrier, even with human agents, right? Human operators on the ground. But we can already see that if level five autonomy remains the nexus for which a ban is focused, is predicated on, that becomes overly restrictive and states who are developing these type of systems may not sign on to that. And then at which point everything goes. But this is not a banal point. You say, okay, well, certain types, yes, certain types, no. Well, the important thing is the fact that these aerial type of weapons that embody level five autonomy are not problematic. We have already said that there's already this trend towards aerial type of warfare. So these may be the types of systems that are preferred anyways, mm. rather than complicating on the ground deployment and operations. So yes, there's been discussions of operators saying that they wouldn't trust on the ground systems of working alongside them. And fair enough, maybe even I, if I were an operator, I wouldn't trust to have that type of system next to me. But I don't see those systems as being 
overly problematic because the trend of military operations doesn't seem to really be moving in that way. That's right. Despite Boston Dynamics, uh, like they're more for support rather than direct engagement being like the, the vanguard, the front line, right, of special operations. I don't really see them in the near future. I see more of this trend towards aerial operations because that's the trend that's been going on so far. Like I said, with drones, we've already been using drones more than people, right? And it's simply removing that human operator there. And we just got to, I guess, stay away from these narratives that these systems are kind of like just going out there on their own, deciding who to drop bombs are. That's really not the case. That's not the case now. And that's despite the legality of what the, for example, United States has been doing with drone strikes. That's beyond the point. If it's illegal, it's illegal. That's what they're doing. But how actual air operations take place, there's this entire institutional structure that takes place beforehand, before a strike legally be taken place. There's all these assessments. So I think that this is the, the nuance in the debate. If we really want to prohibit, if we want this ban on killer robots to be sufficiently salient, to really have teeth, then we have to be able to distinguish not the level of autonomy per se, but the context of use and how military operations actually take place rather than look at them, looking at these technologies as an isolated, independent entity, which they are not. Just like no human operator within any military is fully independent or autonomous. That's right. It's the operators are being augmented by the machine. And the distinction is so brilliant that you share across here in the episode, Stephen, that on the ground versus in air, right? And typically in air, as you mentioned, it's the drones and it's only been the last decade or so. It's a massive shift similar to how we've seen software shifting as well. I mean, we look on the ground with systems like the Iron Dome system that was deployed in the Middle East for anti-missile or basically anti-air damage. And similarly, that type of technology has been considered also in Korea and Japan and Taiwan for other reasons for potential tensions in those regions. And The challenge is that that system as well, it's all about airfare. It's not about on the ground. All these systems we're talking about, our minds, especially in the United States, go towards on the ground because we think of the mass shootings at the concerts and the churches and the schools, which led to that March of Our Lives movement to repeal the authorization of bump stocks on on guns in the States to, to help them become not automatic and they never were automatic. That's probably not level one or level five, but that's you know moving it towards level two or three. It by... seems like it's functionally automatic, not in the, the, the way we would understand an automatic rifle in normal sense where you can hold the trigger down and innumerable amount of rounds will cycle depending on how the magazine capacity, right? It's a perfect example of how the human body functions in relation to the technology of use. Right, because it's using the cycle, the power of a of a single round cycle to push back and forth on this kind of mechanical augmentation to the outside of the gun to allow your essentially your finger to to hit the trigger faster than you know we can do without it. Right. Right, as the operator, right? Augmenting the operator. And I guess the challenge is that when we think about killer robots, it's that to this point that with the use of technology, the proposed ban that's been coming up is just a carte blanche blanket ban. It's not considering these different areas, these different institutions that we need to be more nuanced. And perhaps it wasn't thoroughly discussed when it was introduced as policy. Definitely. And, you know, to be fair, on your point of like um, the Iron Dome, for example, there is no human in on the loop, right? Like that level one to level four kind of autonomy, right? That I discussed before. And that's because for one reason, these systems need to respond really, really quickly because bombs or aerial vehicles don't, you know, move slowly. So they need to be able to respond usually faster than a human operator can. And I argue to a certain extent, that's also true for lethal autonomous weapons rather than defensive autonomous weapons, right? If they're not 
as fast or faster than a human operator, then there is no incentive for their use. But that kind of level is not even being researched. There's no incentive to research something that is less than what we currently have. It's always more than. And to be fair, what I'm arguing here is not novel in the sense that it's not like I'm the first person to say, like, no ban. I'm saying ban of a certain kind, and I'm also saying regulation of another kind. I think that the military-industrial complex itself, to use that kind of controversial term in many circles, provides kind of this institutional infrastructure, right? These practices, whether they actually do those practices is another thing. But the institution was designed to carry out these type of legality and proportionality analyses to determine the legality, the ethics of a strike, of a military engagement. So I think that the institutionalization of arms control norms can be updated, can be similarly augmented given these new types of systems, right? The replacement of the human operator completely within an aerial vehicle, for example, making it level five autonomous, the ability to select and engage with a target, right? So I think that the the infrastructure provides a, a solid foundation in which we can then start to manipulate the existing norms and policy measures to address those. Right, because the body of technology will always change. It's always updating. It's always becoming more advanced. As we're thinking about this decade, the U.S. Air Force had recently announced they've now successfully implemented their first um, artificial intelligence into the Air Force. Uh, actually, the U.S. Air Force has has done business with different companies I've been involved with before in training to actually help their divisions become more savvy with technology, right? To learn data science skills and software engineering skills so that they could be aware of all this technology. But awareness does not mean always on the offense. Often it is on the defense. Often it's building systems that are resilient. And when countries like the United States, for example, and the U.S. Air Force are integrating these technologies, I think a lot of People at first glance, when they don't think about the nuance, they they fail to forget that, well, actually, many, many countries in the world, um, the U.S. is obligated to defend them, right? There's actually contracts and agreements. So a lot of it is very defensive-based and supportive for, you know, our world to continue to grow without violence. And so I think that's this uh, dichotomy that we've talked about in the beginning of the show about ban of social media or ban of weapons. It's that whenever we go so far to the left or right, the controversy, it it changes the course of history. I mean, we do not know where those bans will take us and, and sometimes better and worse. We know today in certain countries out east, there are different bans on speech, different bans on possession of certain items. And we've seen that generally a lot of those societies do start to crumble and start to move backwards. It's not always the case if there's enough social movement in that society, though it's really fascinating what you've shared here today. And what do you think's next, like this year on policy? I mean, are we going to have some traction around these topics we talked about today? Well, If the last few years are in any indication, it seems that multilateral and unilateral cooperation will continue, definitely. It seems that there's a vested interest by nation states to see the threat that these type of weapons propose. And although I did already mention that when we're talking about autonomous weapon systems, usually a single type comes to mind. And that's often what will bring a lack of nuance to the debate. But I think fundamentally, why nation states have yet to agree on a ban, a type of ban, whatever type of prohibition or regulation is, is maybe focusing on the wrong nexus point. And that would be, instead of focusing on the level of autonomy, let's focus on what types of systems specifically, or even categories of systems, if embodied with this level of autonomy, provide this lack of sufficient human control over them. Like I began to tease out with problematized autonomy per se in the last 40 minutes, is that there there are convincing arguments against autonomous weapon systems other than the supposed accountability gap proposed by those types of ordinance systems, such as 
the dehumanization of war, its deleterious effects on human dignity. It appears, though, that actual military operations planning and deployment intuitively constrains the autonomy of any given agent, soldier or autonomous weapon system, to being a function of a larger a priori plan that bears little, if any, intrinsic operational value outside their functional capacity as being able to carry out such plans. And this doesn't, of course, extricate autonomous weapon systems deployed within such constraints from limitless actions or wanton recalcitrance or excess, right? The technical design as a predicate of the technological requirements has to reflect both the proximal and distal intentions and goals of the relevant agents within a deployment envelope, for example. And these would be the commanders who employ these type of weapons in their areas of operations, as well as the potential human operators that may be engaging with them in a symbiotic relationship. They're on the ground while they're, uh, you know, they're being supported by these aerial autonomous weapon systems like fully autonomous drones, for example. But regardless, the capacity for these systems to be responsive to these relevant moral reasons of these agents must be considered as a foundational variable in the weaponeering decision-making process for any given context of deployment in these pre-mission stages. And so tying this all together, I feel like just scratched the surface on many of these topics here today. And if people want to learn more about the body of work, if people want to learn more about the predictions on the policy, what are some things you have to say on that? Well, for those who are interested in like the philosophical foundations of what is meaningful human control, what are the issues with autonomy, or even how can designers start thinking about this? How can they implement something like the value-sensitive design approach? Uh, you can find my work on my website and on my social media linked here. And if people are more interested in following the actual debate itself on the prohibition of autonomous weapon systems, they can watch many of the online multilateral meetings hosted both by the UN and outside of their auspices as they take place. And you can find information on that as they take place probably this year, maybe in the spring, maybe in the summer, Human Rights Watch and on the campaign to stop killer robots for news on those events. But all in all, like most things in life, the issues with autonomous weapon systems and what it means to have meaningful human control are not black and white, as I've said many times. And painting with a broad brush may ultimately do more harm than good. At the very least, a ban will turn out to be symbolic. And at worst, it will lead developers to entirely sideline these discussions and any progress being made. So the middle path, which I've been trying to advocate for, is finding this balance between military priorities and justice in the design and deployment of these types of systems. And philosophical nuanced explorations are the way to make sure that this kind of nuance makes itself manifest. If we can do that successfully, then maybe we can sleep better knowing that we preserve justice and protected human dignity, even in a place like war where these things are often hard to find. Well, Stephen Umbrello, the Managing Director for Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, thank you for joining us today on Humane. And let's look forward to a decade where we do find that middle ground. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.